0: Mr. Derek Vienhoff, who's better known as Deke. <laughs> Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke.
1: Hey, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the channel, to the show, to the podcast. Uh, this is your host, Deke, and I'm here with Dr. Jonathan Howard. Welcome.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I sure appreciate it.
1: And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're a neurologist and a psychiatrist, and you're based in New York City. Is that right?
0: That's correct. Uh, I do both neurology and psychiatry. Uh, I work at NYU and Bellevue. Bellevue is really my home base, the sort of largest and oldest public hospital I, possibly in the in the country. So it's uh, it's an interesting, interesting job. That's
1: impressive. And uh, you have uh, become interested in vaccines, like you say, long before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh... And so there's, of course, a lot that we want to ask you regarding all of that. But why don't you delve in a little deeper into your academic and professional background so we can get an idea of uh, what you do?
0: Yeah, so um, my professional background has nothing to do with vaccines, except, you know, other than most doctors, you know, we try to uh, encourage vaccines. Uh, The main thing that I do is treat multiple sclerosis and work on the neurology wards at at Bellevue Hospital. Um, I also do a lot of psychiatry. I work in the psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue. For a decade, I worked every overnight Sunday night shift. I've kind of cut back a little bit on that, thank goodness. Um, But, you know, saw, you know, if you got drunk and took off your clothes and ran on the subway tracks, they'd bring you to me on a Sunday night. But I got interested in vaccines. It's hard to know exactly how long ago, probably about eight or nine years ago, when uh, a doctor who I trained with at uh, NYU, a a woman by the name of Kelly Brogan, who was, we were friendly. uh, You know, she's a very nice person. I haven't spoken to her in years, but she graduated the residency program in psychiatry with me and uh, started posting all these anti-vaccine messages on, on Facebook and, um that's really how I became interested. And, and uh, unfortunately, her star has sort of uh, risen very high. You know, she's spoken with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop and, you know, gotten herself on sort of a lot of TV programs. And uh, she's very famous in certain circles. Uh, she's become one of the d- disinformation dozen, if you're familiar with this. The, the, there is this- yes. Entity, I think it's called the, the Center for Countering Digital Hate or something like this. She was one of the 12 people uh, most responsible for, along with her husband actually, anti-vaccine messages uh, uh, on Facebook. And um, the, the, the number of things that she believes that are odd, uh, we could eat, I could just sit here and go for an hour about these, right. but you know, that, that germ theory doesn't exist, that viruses don't even make people sick. That the pandemic is all some sort of psyops operation, you know, by God knows whom, in order to do exactly who knows what, um, and you know, she, she's very clearly a, a dangerous person. Um, but it was really her who, who sort of got me interested in, in the anti-vaccine movement. And I've been uh, trying to counter it uh, ever since. It has nothing to do with my sort of day, the daytime job that I just described. of right. And Psychiatry. Right. Um,
1: what was your personal outlook when you when, let's say, go back to December 2019 or maybe November? What was your first sort of inkling to know, OK, this is going to be a big deal and, um, you know, vaccines are going to play a big part of this? And did you have any Perception of the
0: timeline of the vaccine and that from the beginning. Yeah, so I, I had no special insight. I mean, the, the the earliest I found myself commenting on the pandemic was late February, when someone posted on Twitter to doctors, "Are you scared about this?" And a lot of people were saying no. You know, happily, I said yes. I'm going to pat myself on the back here. Uh, you know, I, I listen. I'm not going to say. And I remember around that time. Uh, saying to someone at work that this will be a bigger disruption to New York City than 9-11. I said, you know, I mean, you can't really compare those two things, but, you know, we, we tend to sort of, you know, draw on past tragedies. That was the only real reference point that, that we had. I, I said some, you know, I think this will make 9-11 look like a walk in the park. And, you know, obviously I don't mean to downplay that horrible day, mm-hmm. you know, in saying that. So uh, I knew something bad was coming. Um, in some ways, it hasn't been quite as bad as I feared. I, I, I when, when, when I saw it was coming to New York City, I don't think there's a diagnosis called pre-TSD, but I had pre-TSD. I was having all these sort of nightmares of just you know, basically what they were experiencing in Italy at the time, I think the sort of bodies in the street almost, uh, you know, type experience. So so I had, so in some ways that wasn't quite as bad as I, I, I feared. And yeah, I mean, obviously I knew vaccines were our only way out of it. I mean, they were developed in record time. I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 I deferred to people like Paul Offit, you know, true sort of experts, you know, who were saying, you know, vaccines at the best are going to be a year and a half, two years away. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were all pleasantly surprised that they 10 months, right? I mean, that's incredible. I, I call it the greatest scientific achievement of my, my lifetime.
1: Which is a, a great way to look at it, of course, but we know that a lot of people considered that to be, it was rushed, right? Which um, that line of thinking is um, incorrect. Um, but you can see where people sort of uh, got that at least or got some sort of intuition that they felt that it was rushed of course you have the media as well with their late night headlines right they have to come up with a question and let's debate it was it rushed right so you think you look at the news you say well they're they're asking each other was it rushed they're asking the public they're asking these experts was it rushed maybe it was rushed right yeah and uh i made the analogy of like lab technicians running around quickly with beakers and stuff and spilling them like it, it you know, it may have been rushed in the sense of through the hoops that it has to get uh, through for approval. Right. But, um, you know, these things that we have to debunk on a daily basis. Um, but um, yeah. so the one article that I came across that you had wrote, I believe it's how I found you, was um, your, your critique of another article uh, about COVID-19, a tale of two, uh, or your article was COVID-19, a tale of two articles. And uh, you were discussing the one that's called, uh, there is no COVID heart. And uh, regarding myocarditis. So um, we've heard about this uh, condition um, with uh, both getting it from COVID, uh, but also from the vaccine. So could you elaborate on what that initial article was about and what your critique uh, or your praise was?
0: Yeah. So, so there was an initial article and I'm not a cardiologist. So, you know, to, you know, one of the authors, uh, I think of that article was a cardiologist. So he knows, he knows more than me. Um, And and he was pushing back along with a couple other people uh, about this idea that that COVID, you know, really attacks the heart. There were, there were some, there was an article uh, study from Germany that something, you know, 70% of people with COVID get myocarditis. There was an op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, you know, some they were calling it like a ticking time. bomb. you know, I forgot exactly what it was, but just that we're going to have a tsunami or a big wave of, of myocarditis, which is uh, inflammation of the heart uh, due to COVID. And, and the first article, I think, was very reasonable. It said, yes, uh, COVID, like many viruses, can affect the heart. But there's no, you know, it's not sort of a heart virus. Um, and, and there's no sort of special reason that people who recover from COVID should worry about their heart. I thought it was a, a, a solid article uh, for the most part. The issue is that this doctor and a couple other authors on the piece uh, seemed to completely shift gears when it came time to vaccine induced myocarditis. So, with the virus, they were saying things like, uh, you know, most people are going to recover, they don't have any special reason to worry about their heart, reasonable stuff. With the vaccine, and the, you know these two articles that I, I discussed were six weeks apart—not a great amount of time—they were saying with the vaccine, myocarditis can cause scars. Uh, you know, never call it mild. So it just seemed to be sort of equal and opposite reactions to stuff caused by the virus. Eh, no big deal. Stuff caused by the vaccine, freak out. And, and, and the one critique that I did have. Uh, of the original article uh, was that it didn't mention myths, um, of this inflammatory disorder in children, uh, which happens in about one out of 3,000 children who get the virus, even if they don't have a severe time with it, uh, after they seem to recover, they can have this sort of severe autoimmune reaction. Um, it's affected about 4,500 American kids so far. I know you're from Canada, all my stats are American, so forgive Yeah, ours
1: just, you know, cut it in, uh, to a tenth, and that's uh, yeah. here, so...
0: And, uh, you know, these kids can have severe myocarditis, uh, you know, where they, they wind up, you know, and, and be very sick needing to be intubated. And, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, children who've gotten and young people, young adults who've gotten uh, vaccine myocarditis, uh, so far, as far as I can tell, they all seem to recover, you know, obviously we'll have to wait months and years to, to, to really verify that, but that doesn't seem to be quite the case uh, with missed myocarditis. I mean, I, I personally think all the, all these kids, I hope, uh, you, you know, will be just fine the, the ones who survive, but it was just this sort of attitude of, uh, you know, the virus, eh, the vaccine panic. And, 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 that's an unfortunate, uh, um, theme that a lot of that, that not a lot, but a couple of very influential doctors, I think, uh, have, have done uh, this pandemic. And that's been a theme and it will be a theme of a lot of my writing.
1: Yes, uh, it is very intriguing that everybody has their sort of leanings or or maybe a, a bias of some sort or the way they interpret the data. And then they're going to write an article with their expertise and they're going to be read and followed and re- retweeted. And um, uh, it's tough for the average person to navigate all this stuff. That's for sure. Um, so you've also been vocal, of, like we're talking about COVID and kids. Um Now We can get into maybe like the law of large numbers and explaining that, um, but how do you see or how do you perceive COVID um, and how it affects kids in general? And we know the pandemic has different effects in different regions and that sort of thing, but uh, what is your general outlook?
0: Yeah, so I think the law of large numbers uh, applies. I mean, the overwhelming majority of kids who get COVID are going to be fine. Um, and, And it's important we don't forget that. And I have mentioned that in every single article that I've written. I think the death rate for children, you know, hopefully Delta won't change this. I'm a little bit worried it might, but uh, it it seems to be about, you know, one in forty, one in fifty thousand children who get COVID will will die. Um, The number who've been, you know, the percentage who will be hospitalized is definitely higher than that, but it's still. I'm going to, I've seen some wild estimates here, you know, because no one really knows exactly how many kids have had COVID, but maybe one in three or 4,000, you know, uh, in other words, if my kids got COVID, I wouldn't have been happy, but I wouldn't have lost a ton of sleep. I'm going to be probably more nervous uh, when my daughter gets behind the wheel of a car for the first time. Um, Having said that, multiply these rare harms by, tens of millions of kids are, who've probably gotten COVID at this point. And the numbers began to add up to, you know, non-trivial numbers, at least in my opinion. And you can minimize COVID for children just by focusing on the denominator, like, oh, you know, 0.0001% of children will die, one out of 50,000, you know, uh, et cetera. Or you can simply say, and again, I've seen some various numbers, but, uh, I'll just, uh, just to round it uh, to the, to a, a number, I'll say, you know, around 500 American children have died uh, of COVID uh, thus far. And I think most people wouldn't blow off 500 dead children, tens of thousands hospitalized. Some of them, it's about a third of them very sick in the ICU. So if you put it that way, you know, that begins to get most people's attention, you know, and, and, and you asked, you know, it's very interesting. You said, you know, what, were what were you thinking January uh, in our you know 2020 or, or december 2019 i think if you had said to people then a virus is going to come and it's going to kill 500 american kids most people would say that's pretty bad right that 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 that's a, that's a that's a horrible thing uh, but because it kills so few children uh, as a percentage of people who get the illness and because many more adults have died i think that tends to be minimized and and who knows the virus may be taking a, a nasty turn this the american uh, Academy of Pediatrics, uh, upstates uh, uh, a death count every uh, week or so, and it doesn't get reporting from all 50 states, so it's not perfectly accurate, but they added 24 kids this week, and, you know, three kids dying a day of a disease that is now preventable, you know, at least in children 12 to, to 12 and up, um, you know, it, it, it's a big deal, you know, it, it, it's kind of like a school shooting, right? You know, if, 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 right. if four kids were killed in a school shooting, I don't think anyone would say, yeah, but there's 74 million kids in the United States or, you know, kids are more likely to drown, you know, all of these statements that are true, uh, but sort of used to detract from how COVID is affecting kids.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot there's a lot going on with with that, uh, in the sense that th- we get used to the pandemic. as As the months go on, we become complacent with numbers and with the stats, and we compare things that maybe don't need comparing. Um, and a lot of these things are percept, perceptive. perceptive. It's like, uh, does does X matter? Does Y matter? Do you care about this? Do you care about the number of kids that are dead? You, you know, is a hundred thousand deaths bad? Is eight hundred thousand deaths bad? Like, at what point does someone change who, who didn't think a hundred thousand was bad. Like what, what, how high does the number have to get for someone to go, you know what, actually, yeah, it is a bad thing. Um, but of course, uh, there seems to be a difference between sort of doctors and professionals and, uh, those types who understand stats a little better, or rather to avoid their own biases better than the average person. Like we have, the average person has a lot of sort of perceptive biases, uh, I'm
0: guessing. Oh, Doctors are not better at this. Don't, okay. <laughs> zero, absolutely not. I mean, we're, we're, we're just as human. And most, as a matter of fact, almost all of my writing has been uh, focusing on doctors who I have felt minimized the pandemic in one way or another. Um, and that, that has been the, the one theme of my writing. And they've minimized the pandemic in many ways. I, I think they've minimized the pandemic in two ways. Um, getting facts wrong. So the number, and, and at this point, I'm going to shift away from talking about people like Kelly Brogan, who, you know, a sure. year and a half ago, like, of course, she's going to say, you know, that it's all a plot to sterilize American women for God knows who knows, right? Um, and, and shift more towards people who have stellar academic credentials, you know, they're full professors at, you know, the most prestigious medical schools in the country, uh, you know, are highly published people. Some of them I really admired before the pandemic. Uh, Unlike Kelly Brogan, I see them accused of this. I don't think it's true. They're not clearly grifters. They're not selling anything. Um, you know, they're not selling their online courses. I mean, one of them is selling a book, but so am I. I mean, there's no, nothing wrong with writing the book. Uh, and it's a very good book, actually. I read it. It was an amazing book. Um, and, you know, these people have done, I think, two things. Number one is they, some of them, uh, have made just egregious factual errors. Just, I can't explain it. Uh, And I'll tell you what some of those are. So one of them, uh, a full professor at Johns Hopkins wrote in the Wall Street Journal, uh, something along the lines of, uh, actually I can pull it up here. I can read the whole thing. Um, He said, after reviewing the medical literature and news reports and in talking to pediatricians around the country, I'm not aware of a single healthy child in the U.S. who has died of COVID to date. Okay, so he wrote that uh, at the end of July or earlier this month, I mean, not, not that long ago. Um, and it's just ridiculous. If you Google healthy child died COVID, I found 10 examples of Mm -hmm. of healthy children who have died of COVID, Uh, and and it's just, I I can't imagine why this doctor uh, would make that error. I mean, again, don't get me wrong. It's extremely rare. These stories are so rare they make the news, but they happen. I mean, it's just just a false statement. Another one said uh, at the end of June, uh, something along the lines of the Delta variant is one third less contagious for children than the, uh, you know, I'll read it exactly. Uh, that uh, children are threefold less likely to get any infection with any variant than with the ancestral strain. Okay. Uh, that's obviously not true. So just these blatant factual errors. And, and, and I, I can't explain it. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. what's happening. So that's way number one that the harms are minimized. Way number two is this is, is probably the more common way where instead of getting facts wrong, they just don't have any facts. They'll just say COVID is, you know, severe outcomes are rare in children which again, I I agree with. I mean, that's true, right? I mean, one out of 50,000 dead kids or one out of 50,000 children, uh, you know, who died. If you can't use the word rare to describe that in medicine, you can't use, you know, (laughs) anything. Uh, But again, multiplied by the millions of kids in the US, that adds up to numbers that I think most people wouldn't be like, you know, totally blow off, you know, like one kid dies every five years of the brain eating amoeba. You know, we, we don't worry about that disease right. too, too often or should we but one of the not reasons that. we
1: should worry about it is is because it's preventable is that is that not correct like some people think that for some reason they're still under the impression that the vaccines are dangerous or don't work or something like that where they're then they say well you know the pandemic is the pandemic we just need to let it take its course right like could you imagine if we just let the pandemic take its course from the beginning without any public health measures or any vaccine like what would a world like that even look like is it possible no. to even imagine
0: that so a few things. So yeah, I mean, millions of Americans would have died. Um, I don't think there's too many people who said that with adults. So let me be clear: the, these doctors who have been critical of, they, you know, we all see pretty much see eye to eye on adults. You know, they're like they recognize that as dangerous for for uh, for adults, and they you know suggest that every adult be vaccinated. Um, I actually think that they would don't say what you just said about you know we should sort of let it rip in kids, they, they, they wouldn't say that. I would admire them more if they did because that's essentially what they're saying. You know, they're not saying let it rip, but they are saying uh, to varying degrees, do nothing to try to stop it, don't close schools, don't wear masks, don't get vaccinated. Um, and so what's their plan? And, 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 and I, I know very much what these doctors are against. I don't know what they're for. So if they just had the courage to say, we should open schools. I expect almost every child will get COVID. One in 50,000 will die. 100 That means potentially hundreds of more American children would die. But that's the price I'm willing to pay to keep schools open and keep kids learning, to keep them socialized. They may have a reasonable argument. They say, you know, pre-pandemic, we took that risk with cars. I mean, it's a little bit, not an apples and apples to Comparison, you know, cars uh, aren't aren't contagious, Uh, you know, cars don't have exponential growth in terms of car accidents, but they could say, listen, pre-pandemic, cars killed 600 kids a year, which is true, Uh, and certainly some of those kids died going back and forth to school. We accept that certain children will die on the way back and forth to school. We don't close schools for that reason. That would be more intellectually honest to me than if they just said, no masks, no vaccines, the harms are rare. They they just sort of dance around, in my opinion, sort of dance around what, what all of their uh, strategies to contain COVID, which are no strategies at all, at least for kids, would imply.
1: Now, what about the 0 to 12 group? When are we expecting, is this because of clinical trials or... Um... What are the risks
0: there with vaccines or why haven't we uh, got to that point yet in the pandemic? So the answer is just because the studies haven't been done. Um, the, The studies for the vaccines were ordered in a very conscious way. They were studied in adults 18 and older. And so there's this idea, you know, if there's gonna be a side effect, we would rather have adults have it rather than kids. Hmm. Um, And then they did the studies in the 12 to 17 year old group and the studies for the kids are sort of now uh, enrolling. And, you know, there's a debate about, and, you know, the debate doesn't really matter because the FDA is not gonna authorize any vaccine until the studies are done, uh, until until the studies have been proven safe Uh, or at least as safe as you can do in any study. There's limitations to to these studies, uh, namely that you can't enroll hundreds of thousands or millions of of people in the studies. The the main problem with these studies is they can only enroll a couple thousand children. Um, And uh, until those studies are done, and, and they usually wait two months until after the vaccine, the last child got the vaccine, because almost every single side effect, including the vaccine myocarditis, occurs within a few days or or weeks after getting the vaccine. Long-term side effects with vaccine are are pretty rare. It's almost like if I drank 20 beers tonight, I'd be really sick tomorrow, but you wouldn't expect me to get cancer in two years. Or if I did, it wouldn't be because I drank 20 beers tonight. Mm. So I've heard different things about that, Uh, you know, whether the vaccines are going to be available, you know, probably sometime at the end of the year or, or early next year. And so it's a very, this is a very dangerous time for children in America, in particular, you know, all over the world, um, you know, in particular in the Southern states. Uh, you know, if, I, you know, if I had a 10 year old in Georgia or Mississippi, I do have a niece, uh, you know, or, or Louisiana, or Florida, or Texas, or Tennessee, or any of these states, especially if that child had some underlying condition, uh, I would be uh, very nervous. And, and let me just say a word about those underlying conditions. Uh, The most common underlying conditions are obesity and asthma. Mm -hmm. In other words, these are children who, uh, when they die of COVID, they're robbed of decades of life. It's not as if there's some child, you know, who has terminal brain cancer and that child is going to die on Friday, but they die on Tuesday because they got COVID. You know, these are not children, uh, you know, these are children who are robbed of years and years of uh, decades, their whole lives, uh, essentially. So if I had a, a child like that, I would, I don't know what I would do. I don't know. Hmm.
1: Yeah, we're obviously again, I'm up in Canada, but we're we're looking at the numbers. And yeah, you mentioned Florida and Texas and the the hospitalization numbers are not good. Um you know, we, we even in British Columbia, you know, for example, here in Canada, we have very high uh, ICU rates popping up again. And uh, two provinces have announced uh, mandatory uh, vaccination so far, Quebec and B.C. Uh, here in Ontario, a lot of people are hoping uh, that that becomes the next step where you're already seeing it with the Blue Jays games in Toronto, for example. You're seeing it with local, uh, you know, sports arenas, various things like that. Um, um Mandatory vaccine seems to be an effective tool at this point. Uh it creates upticks, at least. Uh that's what we see in the data here in Canada. What how do you see that as a tool uh in America? Because we have a lot of places with very low um numbers still. Do you uh we know of the certain uh you know, certain ones that are popping up, but as far as state, statewide and you know, federal and um, mandates.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think we have to be really careful about what this means because this plays into sort of a lot of anti-vaxxers fears, you know, Mm -hmm. the all powerful state, Uh, you know, even pre-pandemic, they sort of engaged in, uh, I read this term the other day, I think it's great, these oppression fantasies, Um, you know, uh, some of them have even taken to wearing yellow Jewish stars, which is just a, just an appalling and disgusting uh, behavior. So I think we need to be very careful. So, uh, you know, the government is not going to come to anyone's door and strap them down and forcibly inject them with anything. Okay. So, you know, when you just say the phrase mandating vaccines, that sort of feeds into their paranoia, but almost their hope. Right. You know, I think some of these people are sort of desperate to be victims and desperate to be oppressed so they can fight back the good fight. Against- I thought that was the left. That was supposed to be the left that was all into being oppressed and uh- but it's, it's, you it's, you know, a shift. it's a big shift. I mean, if it, you know, if, if it really was the left, I mean, you know, a decade ago, I would have said the same about the anti-vaccine movement that is all the sort of hippie dippy people on the left. Yeah, it's a little both, right? A little both. But I mean, I think no, I think these days it's much more likely to be the right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what the numbers show. And and, and and my second favorite podcast besides yours is something called uh, Conspirituality. I don't know if you've heard of that. Podcast. No, I'll check it out. Yeah, I mean, it's so really, it's great. It, it talks about the sort of overlap of the yoga world and MAGA and, and all these sort of wellness influencers mm-hmm. uh, who are really, you know, very Trumpian. Um, but, you know, your original question was a good one about, about mandates. And, and yeah, I mean, I think um, the more that the lives of unvaccinated people are restricted um, in you know, by private industry, uh, the better. Um, I think that you know, New York City, you have to, you know, I ate inside the other day and I had to show proof of vaccination. That was great. I've been to a couple of concerts. I had to show proof of vaccination. That was great. Um, and I think New York City is doing amazingly well. Uh, com, you know, it's, the whole Northeast of the United States is doing much better than, than, than the South, uh, for, for that reason. I mean, we're not out of the woods and, and, you know, the Delta variant has definitely changed the game, but. The more people who get vaccinated for whatever reason, uh, the better, in my opinion. Yeah, think- you know,
1: it's it's interesting. We're seeing like in Canada, we have, I believe, if not the highest, one of the highest um, vaccination rates on average. And uh like in Ontario, we've just hit 83% with one shot uh eligible, which is amazing. But um people sometimes think, oh, that number's great. So maybe I don't have to get it because the numbers are already super good. But you know, at the beginning, we heard these numbers about herd immunity, like 70, 80%, but that was of total population. Now we're talking of eligible. uh, And then of course, uh, things change. The science changes. We have Delta to deal with now. Um, You know, we're seeing this fourth wave and the numbers are just creeping up and um, now they're hoping for, you know, 90%. And I can see sort of the argument that people say, oh, they just keep changing the, you know, they're moving their goalposts in a sense, but it's the virus. I think we have to get away from this mentality of us versus them, or it's the government versus the people. I I try to tell some people that, you know, you should think of it like humans versus the virus, uh, not, you know, the people versus the government, because that's a lot, how a lot of things are framed in the modern day and, you know, in our society, especially in the United States, it's, that's Yeah.
0: You know? so, so I think, I think there, there's a lot, so, so let me just make one comment about herd immunity. First of all, yeah. um, herd immunity is a very local thing. So you can have herd immunity in one neighborhood, even one block where I live in New York City and not have it in the next block. So in New York City, pre-pandemic 2019, there were some measles outbreaks here. Uh, Even though something like 95% of the the city is vaccinated against measles. Now, measles is the most contagious disease there is. Um, But uh, as long as unvaccinated people cluster together, there will be outbreaks of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone is going to get pretty much everyone on the planet will get immune to COVID, I think, one way or another. It's just a question of, do you get there through the vaccine or do you get there through the virus? I think those are the choices for most of humanity. Yes. Maybe there are some sort of very isolated, you know, villagers in the middle of, you know, the tundra of Alaska who can avoid it or something like that. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of people, you know, you mentioned, you know, government versus the people. I think there's a lot of people who, and this is what, some of these other doctors, in my opinion, do, they do the opposite for the sake of doing the opposite. In other words, if the vaccine was treated like Invermectin, if the FDA said, don't take this, it doesn't work. If know-it-all doctors like myself said, don't take this, it doesn't work. They would rush out and get the vaccine. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. The FDA banned the vaccine you would see a rush on pharmacies. They, you know, you know <laughs> right, right. They would call it a suppressed miracle cure. They would say, of course, the government doesn't, you know, and doctors don't want you to get it because they make so much more treating it. They don't want to prevent it. So yeah. there's a little bit of the sort of that, you know, whatever, whatever I'm told to do, you know, it's almost like a toddler, you know, in my opinion, you know, when my kids were young, you know, you'd say, you know, put this over there and they would, you know put this toy away and they would make the room messier just to be oppositional a lot of adults haven't grown out of it
1: they call it was it you coined this or someone else on twitter obligatory contradiction
0: something like it that. wasn't me Contrarians, yes right i think a lot of these doctors did very good work pre-pandemic because what they did is they said let me look at what other doctors are doing and critique that and that's very valuable because you know, we're like anyone else, you know, we tend to sort of do things that we were taught just because that's how we were taught to do them. And are they really the right thing to do? Someone needs to sort of take a step back and say, Do you really need to draw labs on every single patient, every single day while they're in the hospital? Do you really need to wake up every patient in the hospital every two hours to take vital signs? You know, these crazy things that we did until someone took a step back and said, hey, you don't need to do that. Hmm. The problem is I think as this obligate contrarianism, they they couldn't turn it off, right? So when every other doctor is right uh, and says, you know, COVID is very serious and it can really impact kids at times and the vaccine is safer than the virus, they just couldn't stop. They, they said, Oh, I gotta be different. You know, if every, if every doctor is saying this, they must be wrong. Them. <laughs> right. 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 They mm-hmm. would never say that, of course. Interesting. Um,
1: you know, there's this idea that will never die and it's actually a group of ideas, but they're all linked together. And um, it is this concept that uh, I could explain it this way. Somebody, made a post and they may watch this episode, or they may watch this podcast. So if they watch it, I'm not going to call their name, but um, they'll know that I'm trying to debunk them directly. But it was a slide of 10 images and uh, it was different, I, different ways the government could deal with the pandemic. OK, and one of them was closing fast food restaurants. OK, the other was banning smoking. Right. Med- meditating, sending door to door zinc and vitamin C and, and all these things. Now, there's a litany of these things, OK, which we may call healthy lifestyle things, I guess you'd call them. Um, but none of those things would impact a pandemic in the moment. And, and none of those things are a vaccine. And people sometimes think of the vaccine as like this Band-Aid Uh, medical solution, some sort of intervention that we don't really need. If we only lived our lives, uh, our lives healthier, we wouldn't have the hospitals overrun with because uh, people with, uh, you know, obesity and these different things, but you, 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 that's, they're all good goals to sort of lower smoking rates and sort of, increase the, the healthiness of the of the diet in general but those are more long-term goals that people are already working on it's not like we just all of a sudden one day realized oh we got to stop smoking like people have been trying to stop these things uh already so it's this idea of just there's there's a different solution that i have that you know that's that's uh, in opposition to whatever the mainstream is um how can we debunk that stuff
0: yeah, so it's hard. You know, we're not cult deprogrammers. You know that that that's for sure. But and I but I think the good that that debunking does is often invisible, right? I mean, who knows how many people read a debunking thing and decided to get the vaccine, right? You know, probably probably a lot. And if we refuse to debunk things, you, you know, you can't debunk everything. It's whack a mole. There's way too much out there. Um, but if if, if people of, of of good faith and who believe in, in you know, try try to try to follow the evidence or silence. Then we sort of cede the space to the the, the disinformation doesn't. Um, and you know, you're right. We've tried to stop smoking for years, and we have. I mean, I think you know, my grandparents' generation, 50% of them smoked, or something like that. You know, my kids' generation is probably going to be much much less than that. Um, but you're also right that we can't just cure obesity today. Like when 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 the COVID hit New York City, it came on like a tsunami. And yeah, we couldn't just cure obesity within a couple of weeks.
1: You can't just do like a uh, super fast liposuction all yeah. across the country. Like it, it just
0: doesn't make sense. And, and you know, I mean, of course, the Delta variant seems to be really affecting younger, healthier people. You know, even the first wave, it was a little bit of a myth that, uh, you know, healthy young people were completely spared. I mean, the youngest person I saw die was 23 and, and he had no, he, he may have had undiagnosed diabetes, I'm not sure, but he had you know, no underlying uh, conditions. But I think that attitude comes from something called the just world hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, just this idea that if you live your life in a healthy way, the world owes you something, you should be fine, right? That if mm-hmm. you eat right, don't smoke, exercise, it's kind of like that book, The Secret, you know, the law of attraction, mm-hmm. the, this idea that 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 you're, you're if you do everything right, if you play by the rules, you're, you know, the world sort of owes you. And it's kind of right. You know, the best way to live a long, healthy life is to not smoke, to exercise, not eat too much, get enough sleep, you know, be social, don't isolate yourself. Those put the odds in your favor for sure. But it doesn't guarantee anything. It's not a guarantee. Healthy young people die of tragic things all the time that you know they weren't supposed to get cancer but some do.
1: So um the the another topic uh currently is boosters uh vaccine boosters um now again i'm no expert my personal outlook is that it's a little bit of a PR kerfuffle and it's a little bit of a red herring perhaps and that it, it would work on an individual level let's say for certain people but as a blanket solution, I'm in the camp that thinks that COVAX is a better uh, focal point to end the pandemic globally, is that we need to get more vaccines into more arms. Um, yeah, so, any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing sort of conflicting things about how often the vaccines wear off and in, in, in what population. Um, you know, the vaccines do not seem as effective against the Delta variant in terms of getting the virus, but they seem just as effective uh, in preventing hospitalizations and severe illness. Which is the key thing to focus on, no? I Which mean, hospital- ideally you'd like to completely block the transmission of the disease, you know, that, that right. <laughs> would a sterilizing vaccine. That, 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 and, and that's what we, I think we maybe had, uh, you know, with the, with the earlier iterations of the, of the, of the virus. Uh, I don't think that's true anymore. Um, so I think it's a quite, so yes, you're absolutely right that that the best way to stop the pandemic would be to try to vaccinate the world, stop new variants and the life of a person in America is no more valuable than the life of someone in Southeast Asia or Africa or anywhere. So, so that's clear. The only thing is, will a individual not getting a booster Help someone in Indonesia or Vietnam? You know, probably not. Um, the worst case scenario is happening, which is Americans are throwing expired vaccines in the trash. Mm-hmm. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like you know my my dinner tonight. If I don't finish it, I'm probably going to throw out the food. Um, You're not going to send it over to correct. That- <laughs> so so yes, in a, in a sort of ideal world. Um, no American would get a booster before the rest of the world, you know, unless there's really significant evidence that it's wearing off, or, you know, maybe this sort of immunocompromised people, but for the most part, you know, no American would get a booster before other countries get their first shot, right? I mean, I, I could imagine if I was living, I couldn't imagine, I'm certain, that I'd be furious if I was living in one of those countries. Right. Um, but, but it's not, as a, it, it, you're right. At the individual level, it's not that simple. Someone refuses their third, and I've seen a doctor say this: "I'm not going to get my third vaccine dose because." Um, and this was a young, healthy person, so it might not be unreasonable, uh, you know, because it, it's it's not fair that that people in these other parts of the world don't have them. But his refusing that vaccine dose, it's just going to sit there in a in a pharmacy uh, refrigerator. It's not going to be sent uh, overseas. Um, right. so I think they're 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 definitely separate. You know, both Pfizer and Moderna said they're going to be making a billion doses, you know by the end of the year. so, so really, the best way to vaccinate the world is to try to do what I did today, uh, following someone's advice on Twitter. I donated one hundred dollars to Gavi. Um that would be, infinitely that that's a, I forgot exactly what he stands for, but it's a global vaccine charity that, that preceded mm-hmm. COVID. Uh, so if you want to help vaccinate the world, do that. Don't refuse the third booster. You wouldn't refuse the thir- third booster. It's, uh, hmm.
1: I think if in Canada, if somebody suggested, if they suggested to me, you should get a third one. I don't know if I
0: would, is that? Yeah. So a young, healthy person, I, I, I agree. I, I don't think there's any evidence uh, that a third booster is going to be. But say over treatment. 60 and you have some. Correct. Correct. Right. Correct. right. Correct. Okay. I and personally, in one of the vaccine trials, so I got to decide what I'm going to do. okay. So, yeah.
1: And so that's just because we know that antibodies, uh, the effect does slow or lower, uh, the levels get lower uh, in time, over time.
0: Yes. I mean, antibodies are not necessarily equal to immunity. I I read this article once that said, if we had antibodies to every virus that we encountered in our blood, it would be sludge. So, so what really matters is not, do you have antibodies, but how quickly can you make them if you encounter the virus again? Um, Mm. So um,
1: what I've heard is that it, it, the third, like the booster will, Increase the antibodies, but it may not broaden the effect. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, we're we're learning about this in real time. Right. Um,
1: yeah, it's super tough for a guy like me he has no no uh, training or expertise in this. Uh...
0: Yeah, but I mean, even 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 the experts really don't know. I mean, because the virus changes so quickly, uh, you know, they're 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 just I think guessing. And and you know what it shows is how you know, and this has been a problem with a lot of this pandemic. Is, is how do you make decisions with uncertainty, right? Mm. So this gets back to, should you vaccinate children younger than 12, right? So let's say, so, so let's say um, I was a pediatrician and a mother of an 11-year-old child came to me and said, in Florida, and said, listen, my kid is 11, he's starting school. Let's say this child is you know, obese and has asthma. Um, you know, he's much bigger than, a, you know, dozens of 12 year olds are vaccinated. Um, and the mom says, you know, listen, I'm, I'm sending my kid back to school. Uh, you know, no one at his school is wearing masks and they've already had 20 kids go out sick with COVID. I don't want my obese child with asthma to get COVID. Should I vaccinate them? Um, you'd be allowed to do that as a pediatrician. You could get in trouble, I suppose, if there was a side effect because you're doing something off label. But, but, you know, how it, this has been a, a lot of problem with the pandemic is, is, is do you wait until you have perfect evidence from the gold standard, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials? Um, and, and you can't, you know, you, you just can't always do those things. So there are some doctors who are against masks currently because they say correctly, there's no randomized trial showing that they work. Mm-hmm. That's true of a lot of things in medicine. And, you know, if we wait, you know, we could do a randomized trial of masks, I suppose, and then we'll know exactly what to do when school starts in two years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) The results are known or maybe next year if everything goes well. No, but you need to make decisions tomorrow, as you pointed out.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, so we have um, a lot of bad numbers in certain states and certain countries. And um, any any predictions or any outlooks that you see um, heading towards hopefully the endemic Uh, times of COVID. Uh, We don't know, I guess, if that's going to be six months, a year,
0: two years. Uh, Any thoughts going forward? I mean, I was, you know, like everyone else, three or four months ago, I was very optimistic. Um, I am still optimistic for vaccinated people. I think vaccinated people as a group are going to do pretty well. Um, I think, uh, American, probably Canada, you know, you guys are doing better than us, but, uh, I think the unvaccinated States are going to be in for, uh, I mean, already a thousand Americans are dying per day. And I, I I don't see a pathway for that ending. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone felt so bad for us in New York city. Uh, we're going to get off easy compared to the rest of the country, especially the South, because, COVID hit New York city. It was like an earthquake. It was a horrible thing. Uh, and it was very damaging, but it was short. Um, and you know, the rest of the country, it's more like a drought, you know, a natural disaster that's just going to last and last and last. And, you know, a lot of doctors are going to be, and nurses are going to be very burnt out.
1: Yeah. You already see a lot of uh, anecdotes, uh, from nurses and doctors about, um, depression, anxiety, uh, just heightened psychological states and wear out and um, physical ailments and like quitting, right? Is there, is there, is it not true that uh,
0: yeah. nurses and doctors are just quitting because they can't handle it? I don't know. How, I don't have the, the numbers, but I mean, and, and I think it's also different. Another thing that was different about New York is there weren't vaccines then, you know, so all pretty much all of the people getting sick now, um, want to be careful how I phrase this, they, they didn't choose this, but they chose not to avoid it. And and, mm-hmm. and some of them are, are very nasty to the doctors. I've, I've heard stories of, you know, demanding that they be treated with quack cures and vermectin and, you know, right, right. nine on their deathbed that they have COVID because they are so certain that COVID is a, a, a hoax or a mild uh, illness. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing that I, I, you know, I thought I understood the anti-vaccine movement and I thought that uh, the main reason that people reject, or one of the main reasons that people rejected vaccines is just that we had no memory of polio. We had no memory of measles. We had no memory of diphtheria. you know, you want to see what those diseases did, you'd have to open a history book. Um, and I thought, boy, if those diseases came back, people would vaccinate pretty quickly. Uh, but I was wrong about that. And, um, People are willing to die for their beliefs. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, uh, I'm thinking of writing a piece, sort of making an analogy uh, to the last movie I saw uh, before the pandemic, the movie 1917 about World War I. Where, you I know, saw it, it three times in the theater. Yeah, it was incredible. It's amazing. Uh, you know, these brave young men rushing out of the trenches to certain death. Um, that's kind of what we're seeing now, right? I mean, that, that people are rushing into restaurants. Uh, <laughs> Death is not as certain, you know. Even with adults, ninety-nine percent will survive, uh, but one percent of the ninety million unvaccinated Americans uh, is is, is going to turn out. It is turning out to be be a lot of people, um, you know. So just like those soldiers rushing into battle because they didn't want to appear cowards, you know, they rushed into certain death. You know, that that's what we're seeing here. I, I maybe someone can find a flaw in that analogy, but um, you know, they're willing to die. Uh, rather than give up their group identity uh, and as mm-hmm. someone who sort of rejects vaccines, and that that's been the real tragedy, one of yeah. many of this pandemic is that whether you're vaccinated or not has become sort of a marker. Uh, the same way you know who you vote for, do you go to church or not, has become a, a core part of people's identities, and people will die for their mm-hmm. identity. Yeah, they're they're taking the chance.
1: They're taking their chances, but they're uh, taking their chances uh, with a with a slightly greater risk, uh, not slightly, but um, significant. If you look at the uh, comparison of unvaccinated and vaccinated people in hospitals right now, I was just watching looking at a Twitter thread that had infographics posted from, you know, various hospital units, people posting their infographics and uh, that's the theme across the board is that roughly, you know, 90, 95% uh, versus a 5%. Um, and I can understand, I can, I try at least these days to sympathize with, with uh, all the views because just to better understand them at least. Right. Um, but we do have to change certain minds. Well, I have one further question. Um, this concept of uh, triaging in the hospitals that are super, super busy where they're, they're triaging. Uh, based on vaccination, vaccination status, uh, it's being seen as, you know, super discriminatory and, and, and it, by the definition of the word, it is discriminatory in a sense, but that's what triage is. I, I'm assuming, yeah. um, how do we make sense of this and to get people to not, I guess you can't get them to not be, to uh, be upset, but, uh, how do we make sense of why they would triage based on survivability?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, what you're talking about is if you know, there's, 10 beds and, and 15 patients show up, what do you do? And, and let me very, very clear when I'm talking about beds, it's not just a literal bed, you know, it's a team to take care of the person, it's the, the equipment, it's the, it's the medicines. Um, and, you know, I think most people, reasonable people would say that you if you try to treat the person who's gonna have a better chance uh, of survival um, you know, or who's younger, who's going to, who, who, if they, you know, if a 99 year old dies of COVID, it's sad, but it's not as tragic as a five-year-old die, dying of COVID. You know, I think the the medical ethicists call that fair innings. That's the, that's their sort of term for, you know, trying to save younger people. Uh, you know, I, I think if you um, start to prioritize vaccinated people on a sort of moral sense uh you know that these people tried to do the right thing and they were just unlucky uh as opposed to you know unvaccinated people who made a bad decision you, know, you begin to a very slippery slope you know where you don't treat anyone who abuses alcohol or you know uses drugs or you know drives well and that's the comparison being made now is so, that right is so that i think the, is the only reason to pri- potentially prioritize vaccinated people is that they're going to do better that they're going to have a milder course that you have a better chance of 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 but isn't that triage? Isn't
1: that how triage has been working all all along? Why is that? A, is this a new concept? Or it's people a new just... concept
0: because we haven't run out of beds until now, right? So, so uh, that's why it's in, so that that we haven't had you know New York, you know some of the hospitals in the boroughs actually that that the outer uh, parts of New York. I live in Manhattan. I'm very sort of center. You know some some of the hospitals in in, in Queens did you know, they were just deluge. you know, that, you know, hundred people showing up in, in, an hour, but for the most part, the, you know, thank God the United States hasn't faced that situation uh, in, until, you know, it's getting that way now um, in, in mm-hmm. a lot of Southern hospitals where they're converting cafeterias into hospital wards and, mm-hmm. and canceling all sorts of surgeries. And i read about some guy who was shot and needed surgery and had to wait six days to get it. And they're trying to ship patients from Texas to Minnesota um, so yeah, I mean, if, 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 you know, you have two patients and one has a 10% chance of living and one has a 90% chance of living, you try to treat the patient who has a 90% chance of living, um, you know, hopefully not you know, so few vaccinated people will end up needing to go to the hospital that, that, that they won't, uh, have to make those decisions. But that's, and, and, and I think the main sort of driver behind that is they're just going to have a better chance of success.
1: Seems like a harsh reality that people are having
0: a tough time swallowing that pill, but uh, that's sort of how it works. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like something out of a, you know, movie or ethics textbook, you know, that you never, you know, the the, the trolley problem... <laughs> It's, it's, I,
1: I can see a lot of COVID stuff being in textbooks decades and decades from now. Oh. Um, it's going to be a lot of documentaries and looking back. And actually, that's something I'm very interested in—is seeing in the far future. You know, like how we watch documentaries about World War II now, but during World War II, well, especially because of the lack of sort of technology, but they didn't know what was going on. Uh, you know, over there, they had no idea. Only looking back,
0: do we know? What's interesting is the last pandemic was forgotten. Right. I I did read one book on it a few years ago, but I think I was about the only person. Actually, George Bush read a book on the pandemic and uh, became very interested in pandemic prevention. But there's no memorials to, you know, the 1918 flu, even though it killed more Americans than World War I and World War II combined. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't think of any famous names lost to to the pandemic. Uh, It it just sort of, you know, and it was really, I think, the the end of the pandemic that really ushered in the roaring 20s, to be totally honest with you. And what's interesting is every single debate that we're having now, minus the vaccines, but every single debate about masks, about churches congregating together, they had back then. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I found a bunch of old newspaper headlines from 1918. Um, uh, I can try to send it to you and maybe you can post it. In yeah, the definitely. Um, everything, you know, the, someone was fined for being an open face sneezer. I thought that was pretty. <laughs> right, right. You know, but they had anti-mask rallies, everything. And when this happens again in 100 years, you know, hopefully same 1,000 thing. years, uh, they'll be the exact same thing. It's just how humanity is. Um, every plague in history, people react in different ways. Well,
1: there's many, there's a lesson there, I think, and uh, something about human nature. Um, And maybe that's the topic for another episode. But uh, Dr. Jonathan Howard, man, uh, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and uh, all the knowledge and we wish you all the best in uh, New York and uh, in America. We hope the pandemic uh, becomes becomes endemic uh, at some point soon. Knock on wood. And uh, let's plug, uh, you mentioned you have a book and can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, Where should they look for you?
0: Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's uh, I think it's J. Howard Brain, M.D. Um, I wrote an, a couple books on neurology. Would probably not be interested in those. Um, but I did write a book on sort of errors doctors make uh, uh, called uh, Cognitive uh, Biases in, in, in Medicine. Just look me up on on Amazon. Um, uh, it, it's really, uh, in my view, at least, that's sort of a medical textbook as much as it is sort of a critical thinking textbook. So if you like books like by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, uh, you know, that's really sort of what I tried to to, to model it on. So no, that sounds me. awesome. Yeah, well no, that's cool. great. I'd love to check out that book.
1: Uh, maybe I can get a signed copy one day. We'll see. Yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> OK, yeah. Thanks again and all the best. And we'll follow you on Twitter. We'll continue to follow you. All right. Thank you.